Amen. So there's a, a pretty famous now interview, uh, 60 Minutes interview with Tom Brady, and the interviewer uh, asks this New England Patriots quarterback, Tom Brady, and says, uh, uh, you know, well, I don't remember the question actually, but Brady, Brady responded with, uh, why do I have three Super Bowl rings um, and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey, man, this is, what, this is what it's about. I reached my goal, my dream, my life. Me, I think, God, it's got to be more than this. What's the answer? The interviewer asked. Brady responded, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. So we, we, can, we can look at Tom Brady's life, millionaire, cabillionaire probably, three Super Bowl rings, married to a supermodel, and we would say, man, that's got to be the happiest guy on earth. And his, his response is, there's got to be more. There's got to be something greater. And so what if I told you today that every single person in this room and all people for all of human history have shared one basic desire? I believe that basic desire is simply to be happy, is to be content. We've been, you know, when I, when I, you know, young or old, rich or poor, male or female, we all are on this journey, and we're looking for, for some kind of happiness. You know, when I first started walking with Christ and sharing Christ with others, I was convinced that people were on a truth journey, and that if I just shared the factual truth about Christ, and that's very important to do that, but I believe that if I just shared the factual truth about Christ, that that would be enough, and the light switch would flip, and, and I've come to learn that very, very few people are on a truth journey or see themselves as being on a truth journey, but we are on a happiness journey. Ever since our expulsion from the Garden of Eden, we've been saying with Tom Brady, there's got to be something greater. There's got to be something more. And we, we live in a nation of people chasing happiness. And I wonder how many people you found that have actually discovered it. We tend to settle for brief moments of a feeling that we can't seem to keep or replicate. We tend to believe that just a little more stuff, a little more money, one more relationship, no matter how dysfunctional, maybe that promotion is going to give us the happiness that we seek. Some of us look for happiness in our physical appearance. You know, I just started working out again, hitting faith fitness again, uh, as much as I, my body can take it. And, and, uh, and today, Ethan and I, my, my five-year-old son, we're getting ready in, in, the, in the bathroom, and Ethan looks over at me and says, Dad, check out your belly. It's huge. So thanks, Ethan. I, no, seriously, Dad, look at it in the mirror. Like, it's even bigger in the mirror than it looks from the side. I get it, Ethan. Like, I really understand. And so, Ethan, my, my happiness journey just... So what can end up happening is that we end up focusing so much on our own twisted idea of happiness that we miss out on the real thing completely. You know what that's about? Like we get so zeroed in on our own twisted idea of what happiness is or what's going to make us happy, and we end up missing out on the real thing. King Solomon's a great example. I mean, this guy had wealth and riches. He's the son of a king. He becomes a king himself. People flock to him from all over the world to, 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 to see his wealth and to hear his wisdom. And yet at the end of his life, he writes that super uplifting book, Ecclesiastes, and he writes, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. He went from being the man who had it all to being the man who says, all is vanity, all is empty, all is futile so questions for us today if somebody asks you are you happy what would be your answer how do you define happiness here's an even more important question is God happy we think about God is God happy 
How can happiness be experienced? If somebody said, give me a, a, a path of how to become happy, what would you tell them? How does being a Christian impact your happiness journey? How does the gospel of Jesus Christ impact your happiness journal? So let's begin with God's happiness. Psalm 1611 says that you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Is that the image of God that maybe you were raised up with? That in God's presence is fullness of joy? C.S. Lewis said, uh, joy is the serious business of heaven. Were we raised with this idea that God is just, uh, his presence is all about joy? Were we raised with the, with the, the sense that God has pleasures in his hand for us. We tend to think of God, I think, as wanting to swat pleasures out of our hands or somehow holding pleasures back from us. But yet the psalmist says, in your hand, in your presence is true pleasure forevermore. Galatians 5, and 23 talks about the fruit of the Spirit. The first is love. The second is joy. The Spirit of God creates in us what is inherent to God himself, and that is joy. God himself is characterized by joy. Luke 15, Jesus tells a story of a father whose, who, whose son wanders away. The prodigal son, when the son returns home, the father does what? He throws a party. And Jesus says that heaven rejoices. Heaven throws a party. When one sinner repents, heaven doesn't say, okay, yeah, that's good. Whenever a sinner returns to the father's house, God throws a party. God is joyful by nature. From creation, which happens out of the overflow of God's love, all the way to new creation, where God's going to wipe away every tear from every eye, we see a God who experiences wrath, he experiences grief, but his basic posture is joyful love. So did you grow up with an image or a picture of a joyful God, or did you, or did you go to church with these folks here on the screen? Maybe, maybe a lot of us think went to church with these little angry hobbits here, okay? And, and because we went to church with angry hobbits, we kind of got this picture of God, that God is some kind of angry being. When we come to know and worship this God, and we begin to be transformed into his image, two things happen to us. We become holy, and we become happy. So often we try to divorce those two things, those two concepts. And we have happy people over here kind of just doing whatever they want, and we've got the holy people over here just mad at everybody. And the reality is God created both of these concepts. Both of these concepts flow out of the character of God. And we can't be happy without holiness. And we can't be holy without happiness. They go together. Both are wrapped up and discovered in the person of Jesus Christ. And so the idea I'd like for us to walk out of here today with is that who we worship determines whether we are headed for ruin or restoration. Who we worship determines whether we are headed for ruin or restoration. So we, we're, we're familiar with this idea of the pursuit of happiness. And, and you know, the pursuit of happiness didn't begin when uh, we wrote the U.S. Constitution. The pursuit of happiness began when we, were, expulsed, when we were, were exiled from the Garden of Eden. But the way our pursuit has gone wrong is found in Romans 1, where we're told we exchange the worship of the Creator for the worship of the creature. We worship things that God made rather than worshiping God Himself. And we have, uh, we're living in a moment in time where people have come to worship the idea of happiness rather than worshiping the person who created that idea. And if we worship happiness, we're never going to attain it. We attain it by worshiping the one who made it. And if we pursue Jesus, we will become both holy and happy. So does God want you to be happy? Yes, he does. Yes, he does. He wants you to experience the real thing. 
He doesn't want you to settle for some kind of perverted discount version and call it happiness. He wants you to experience the real thing. And so if I, if I walk up and I see my kid eating a turd and calling it a brownie, I'm going to slap that turd out of his hand so fast his head spins around backwards because I love my son. God loves you. He's not going to let you call a turd a brownie, no matter how happy you are with it, no matter how satisfied you think you are. He loves you. And, and even if you think that that turd is going to bring you, this is the last time I'm going to say turd, second to last time. <laughs> even if you think that's going to bring you true and lasting happiness, your father knows that it will not. And so he's not being cruel. He's not being mean. He loves you. And he wants you and me to experience something real, something good, something eternal, and something lasting. There's no such thing as lasting happiness outside of God because God himself created it. So because he created it, guess what? He gets to define it. I don't get to define it. And so, so often we justify our sin with the words, well, God wants me to be happy. You ever hear that one? More importantly, how often do we say that one? God wants me to be happy, so of course he would want me to leave my wife for this woman over here. That's satanic. That's satanically twisting something true to fit our perverted desires. And that kind of twisting will lead us to destruction, will lead us to the opposite goal that we're chasing. Psalm 1 gives us a, a pathway for happiness. It says, blessed, that word blessed, also translated happy. Happy is the person who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in this word, he meditates day and night. Now, that may not seem like a recipe for a rockin' Friday night, but I have discovered this is the path to happiness. Blessed is the man, happy is the man who does not walk in the path of sinners, sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in God's word. Mark Twain wrote, the, most, the two most important days in your life are the day you are born and the day you discover why. The day you're born and the day you found out why. A few hundred years ago, some really sharp believers, some really sharp Christians wrote a document called the Heidelberg Catechism. And they asked the question, what is the chief end of man? And the answer was the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Don't you love that they didn't separate holiness and happiness? They said that our end, the thing that we were created for, was to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Because your holiness and your happiness are not divorced. They're, 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 they're found together in Christ. So, so, so when you're born, that's a really important day, but when you're John chapter 3, born again, you figure out why. And the reason you were born was to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. There's a, a professor named Christine Carter, PhD. She's a sociologist and a happiness expert at University of California at Berkeley. Okay, So if you're coming from a, a, a PhD at Berkeley, we may not be expecting this to, to be coming from a, a, a deeply spiritual perspective. It may be. I don't want to presume on her, but this isn't some kind of Bible thumper, okay? Carter says, compelling research indicates that the pursuit of happiness, if we define happiness as pleasure and easy gratification, it will not ultimately bring us deeper feeling of fulfillment. 
It will not allow us to live in our sweet spot. Although we claim that the pursuit of happiness is our inalienable right and primary driver of the human race, we humans do better pursuing fulfillment and meaning. She goes on to say, how do we do that? We establish a connection to something larger than ourselves. How do you like that? Chasing momentary gratification will not make us happy, but pursuing meaning will make us happy, and we pursue meaning by connecting to something bigger than us. That sounds very familiar. I think God's been saying that a long time. So we're going to get to Belshazzar in, in Daniel 5 in a second. So when we chase autonomous self-rule, that's what Belshazzar the king is going to be doing in Daniel 5. We want to have happiness on our own terms. When we do that, we're doomed to never find what we're looking for. But when we chase the one that's worthy, what we find is holiness and happiness all wrapped up together. And there's still grief, there's still sorrow, there's still loss, there's still pain. But you can live and I can live with a settled joy because of who God is and what he's done. And so a fool is someone chasing happiness on his own terms. A fool is someone chasing happiness disconnected from God, disconnected from the one who made it. That's like trying to be an iPhone owner and not be connected to Apple. Did you know that Apple doesn't believe very strongly in autonomy? You can't do whatever you want if you're an iPhone user. You are connected to them. You can't say, well, I want all the perks of being an iPhone owner, but I don't want anything to do with Apple. That's never going to happen. And, and most of the people in this room and in our world have signed your autonomy away to Apple because you wouldn't dream of not having an iPhone. But you're not about to give your autonomy to God. It doesn't make a lot of sense. In Daniel 5, we're going to meet a king, Belshazzar, who's trying to live his life and pursue his happiness autonomously, and he's going to spend his last night on earth as a fool. I wonder if that's the way you or I want to spend our final moments on earth. He's seeking happiness on his own terms. There's something so pitiful about this because he thinks he's living the dream and he is about to be living a nightmare. He's like an addict chasing crack rather than experiencing the overflow of happiness that characterizes the pursuit of God. I have been confronted that I've been using crack uh, examples a lot lately, so uh, I, know I need to dig into what that's about. But um, <laughs> As we dive into chapter 5 of Daniel, Belshazzar is an example. He's a witness of this universal human quest to try to find happiness apart from God. And the words of Proverbs 16, 25 apply to him. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. There is a way that seems right, but it ends in destruction. Daniel 5, one, King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. How would you like to have a party where you invited a thousand of your closest friends over? Sounds pretty fun, doesn't it? Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought. Now, that Nebuchadnezzar is called his father, but that word can also be translated predecessor. It's the idea of father or predecessor. Nebuchadnezzar would have been a predecessor a few kings back from Belshazzar. He's not literally his father. He's his predecessor. There, after Nebuchadnezzar died, there were a series of short-lived kings. And then finally, a king named uh, Nabonidus came to the throne. And for years, people said you couldn't rely on the authority of Scripture because there's, they, couldn't, they couldn't find anybody in the historical record named Belshazzar as the king of Babylon. They said everybody knows Nabonidus was the king of Babylon uh, when, when Babylon fell. And then in about the year 1860, they found a scroll called the Scroll of Nabonidus. And it, in it, it declared that Nabonidus had, uh, had gone into exile and had named his son Belshazzar as the co-regent of the kingdom. Uh, history tells us that on the very night that the Persians uh, defeated the, the, the 
Neo-Babylonian Empire. This was on the night of uh, about October 11th, 539 B.C. Um, the Persians surrounded the city. Belshazzar and his lords were feasting and drinking. And while they were feasting and drinking, while there was a destroyer outside the gates, the Persians were rerouting the Euphrates River that flowed under the city wall of Babylon. And once they got it diverted, they waited under the wall, opened the gates from the inside, and according to Xenophon and Herodotus, Herodotus took the city without throwing a spear. So how are you and I like Belshazzar? Sometimes we're throwing a party, looking for a little momentary happiness while destruction is at our gates. Seeking autonomous happiness on our own. What we're going to find is that what we worship determines whether we're headed for ruin or restoration. Belshazzar worships himself and he finds ruin. Daniel, by contrast, worships God and he finds restoration. So, so we find from this story that, the, that Scripture is reliable. We find that Belshazzar is pursuing autonomous happiness as an escape from reality. He's idolized happiness and ends up chasing a twisted perversion of the real thing. You know, sin promises happiness but delivers dehumanization and death instead. So look what happens next. Verse 3, they bring the golden vessels that have been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem. The king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines, they drank from them. They drank wine, praised the gods of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. So here's the scene. They're really getting uh, lit, okay? And, and he says, man, you know what would be cool is if we, as a demonstration of how we don't care and we do whatever we want to do, let's go, remember when uh, all those years ago, it's been about 70 years by this point, it's been about 20 years since the end of Daniel 4, what if we go to the treasury, we get those, um, those goblets and stuff that, that, that Nebuchadnezzar got out, got out of the temple in Jerusalem, and what if we get drunk on those things, okay? Let's just do some tequila shots from the communion, from the communion uh, glasses, okay? And let's have a party, and then we start praising uh, the gods of gold, silver, and, and stone, and bronze, and all these things, and you see that this is foolish even by pagan standards. This is proud and arrogant even by pagan uh, standards, and so Belshazzar's disobedience leads him to dishonor God. And that dishonor leads to outright defiance. Have you experienced this? This path? Disobedience to dishonor, defiance, and then comes death. So the the, the, what happens next is really amazing, and it was frightening. Uh, a hand appears. It wasn't connected to anything, and it writes these four words, mene, mene, tekel, parsin, on the wall. And they understand probably what the words uh, say, but they don't understand what it means. And, and, and Belshazzar, we're told, is his loins are, are knocking. We don't know if that's like his, his, his knees are knocking together or if he needed some depends, okay? It's not, it's not clear what it meant, but he is scared, and he doesn't know what to do. And just like it's happened to Jan, Daniel 2, 3, and 4 so far, he brings in the magicians and the Chaldeans and the astrologers, and none of them can make any sense out of the writing on the wall. They just know it's bad. And the queen mother walks in, in verse 10, and because of the words of the king and his lord, she came into the banqueting hall. The queen declared, O king, live forever. Yeah, yeah, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. God never forgets his Daniel. Belshazzar had forgotten Daniel even existed. And you know, sometimes you may feel like you're the only one at your school, you're the only one at your workplace, you're the only one in your neighborhood, you're the only one in your church that loves God and is pulling for the right things, and you're trying to do the right thing. 
And God does not forget you. God didn't forget his Daniel. God never forgets his Daniel. God's not going to forget about you. Daniel um, is remembered by this queen mother. She reminds Belshazzar of the story. He says, oh yeah, let's call that guy in. And I love that Daniel's never hanging out with these people. They, also, they always have to go find him. It's not like he's over there you know, doing a keg stand in the corner by the lampstand. Like, where's Daniel? Oh, he's not here. And so they go find him. He's not joining in their idolatry. They go find him and bring him in. And Daniel, it's been 70 years now. Daniel's about 80, and Daniel walks in, and he, he's just not going to mince words, okay? He, at, at 80, he still can't be bought. He still respectfully resists. He's still a prophet, not a puffet, and he's not too old to be used by God. So if anybody in here has said lately that you're retired from ministry, Daniel says, no, you're not, okay? So Daniel gets brought in, verse 13, before the king. The king answered, said to Daniel, you are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king, my father, again, my predecessor, brought from Judah. I've heard of you that you have the spirit of the gods, that the spirit of God is in you. Light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. And now the king makes Daniel an offer. He thinks Daniel can't refuse. He says, I'm going to make you. If you can tell me what this means, I'm going to clothe you in purple. I'm going to put some bling around your neck. I'm going to make you the third person in the kingdom. So Nabonidus is the first person. Belshazzar, the co-king, is the second person. He's about to make Daniel the third person. Look at what Daniel says in verse 17. Daniel actually said, let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Burn right? Nevertheless, I will read the writing the king had made and make known to him the interpretation. But Daniel, like any preacher, before he gets to the point, is going to preach a little sermon, okay? And he says, O king, verse 18, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your predecessor, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. All this came from God, he said. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed. Whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised. Whom he would, he humbled. But then his heart was lifted up and he became proud. And what Daniel's going to do is retell the story that we saw last week in chapter 4 where Nebuchadnezzar went crazy and became like an animal and was eating hay and the dew of the ground was on him. And Daniel reminds Belshazzar of all of that. Verse 22, and you, his, his son, you, his successor, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. You knew better but you thought it didn't apply to you. Anybody ever feel like you're the exception? Everybody else gets caught for, you know, not having integrity at work, but God would understand why I'm doing it. I mean, I've, I've seen a lot of people's ministries destroyed through porn and, and, and illicit affairs, but I mean, that's never going to happen to me. You ever do that? You ever play that game? Daniel says to Belshazzar, man, that's the game you're playing. You saw, and yet, you didn't humble yourself. The vessels of his house have been brought in before you. You and your lords, your wives, your concubines have drunk wine from them. You praise the gods of silver, gold, bronze, iron, wood, stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath. And whose are all your ways you have not honored? That's the punchline for Belshazzar. That's the punchline for us. There's a God who holds your breath and mine. Will we honor him? Will we chase him? Will we pursue him? even if his ways are different than our ways. What we worship determines where we're headed, whether we're headed for ruin or restoration. Daniel goes on to interpret. He says, this is what the hand wrote. Verse 26, this is the interpretation of the, of the matter. Mene, God has numbered. That, that means that it's a, a unit of, of money, and it means numbered. God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. That word Perez also 
the same consonants uh, in the word Persia. So basically it says, numbered, numbered, weighed, divided. And the wise men are saying, what does this mean? And Daniel says, it means your days have been numbered. You've been weighed on the scale and you're, 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 you don't measure up to God's glory. And now what you have is going to be taken away from you. How do those words relate to happiness? Well, here's good news. God says the same thing to you and me. Your life and my life, our days are numbered. Psalm 90 verse 12, teach us, O Lord, to number our days that we may live with wisdom. You are not going to live this life forever. It will come to an end. Your days have been numbered. Tekel. Um, your life is weighed. And God's word says that as your life is weighed, all of us sin and we all fall short of God's glory. But here's really good news. Jesus has stepped in. And he said, let me get on the scales for you. Let me lay down my life for you. Let me do for you what you could never do for yourself. Somebody that knows that they're sinful, somebody that knows that judgment is at their door, when they hear the word of the gospel that they can be free, you know what the response to that is? Joy. Psalm 32, 1 says, Happy is the man whose sin is forgiven. Happy is the person whose transgression is not counted against him. So Belshazzar died that night. The Persians took the city October 12, 539 B.C. There was a transfer of power. What was the Babylonian Empire becomes the Persian Empire. Babylon fell. All the saints rejoiced. You know, if God took drinking out of some goblets from the temple this seriously, I wonder how he feels about what we do with our bodies that 1 Corinthians 6 say are his temple. We've got to get to a point where we stop justifying sin because it, quote, makes us happy. I don't know how many times I hear this. Well, this, I'm happy doing this. And my response is, are you though? Are you trying to convince yourself or me? And even if you are, so? You ever justify sin because it, you say, well, I'm just living with my girlfriend or I'm just cheating on my wife or I'm just pursuing my, my wicked desires because it makes me happy. You ever play that game? I do. You? Nobody here does. That's such a relief for me to know. And we do with our bodies what we will. 1 Corinthians 6 says, flee. says verse 19, 619. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit whom you have from God? You are not your own. You are not your own. You were bought with a price to so glorify God with your body. God says that I don't, if I know Jesus, I don't even own my body. Man, I rebel against that. Do you rebel against that? We don't like the thought of anybody telling us they own us, and yet that's exactly what God says. He has bought and paid for you. And he gets to decide what we do. He gets to decide what's holy and what's not holy. Not only that, but God has, has, has created this entire construct of happiness 
And if we insist on pursuing happiness apart from him, we're never going to find it. So Babylon falls, the saints rejoice, the Babylonians weep. Revelation chapter 17 through 19 tells about another Babylon, this great system Babylon. One day is going to fall. And when it falls, and the kingdom of God is the kingdom that, 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 that fills the whole universe, we're told that the merchants and the sailors and the kings and all those who were in bed with the Babylonian system are going to weep. But the saints are going to rejoice. So the question of Revelation isn't who's the Antichrist. The question of Revelation is which system have I placed my trust in? If Babylon fell tomorrow, would I weep or would I rejoice? In Daniel 5, there's a feast followed by judgment. In Revelation, at the end of Revelation, there's judgment followed by a feast. And that feast is called the marriage supper of the Lamb. And everybody's invited, but you only get there if you know the Lamb. The Lamb who died to ransom the slain. He wants you there. Which feast are we living for is going to determine the quality of our happiness quest. And so in closing, and this really is in closing, man, God wants you to be happy. But any happiness that exists, exists on God's terms, not ours. So a couple things to stop doing, a couple things to start doing. Stop chasing happiness and sacrificing holiness. Stop divorcing holiness and happiness as though we can have one without the other. Let's humble ourselves and pursue God. We'll find both holiness and happiness wrapped up in Jesus. Stop justifying sin because it supposedly makes us happy because you're not your own. We are not this universe's object of worship. Christ is. Worship him and you'll have pleasures forevermore. So who we worship determines whether we're headed for ruin or restoration. As the band comes, we're going to sing one more time, Is He Worthy? And I ask you to sit with a couple questions we asked at the beginning. What does it mean to be happy? Man, I pray that you discover it. I know that God wants you to live with a settled joy. Rooted not in your merit, but rooted in the cross and resurrection of Jesus. And that is attainable. That can happen. Happy is the man whose sins are forgiven. But I pray that you wouldn't call something that's not the real thing the real thing. Jesus wants you to have the real thing. So maybe there's some of us in this, in this place this morning that need to repent. And you know what God's word says happens when you repent? Heaven parties. This is why we love parties. Because God loves to party. Maybe you need to repent. Maybe you need to return to Christ. Maybe you need to place your trust in Him for the first time or say, I want to follow Him in baptism. Maybe you need to pray. But let's respond to Him now. Let's stand together.